Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. actually all the way from chapter 14 but when we get into chapter from the time of the seventh trumpet which is the last trumpet when that last trumpet shall sound and the seventh trumpet as you recall is a part of the seventh seal that when the seventh seal is opened then seven trumpets are revealed and when the seventh trumpet sounds then the seven bulls are poured out the seven last bowls of God's wrath over a very short period of time that I deduce is about 30 days because Daniel talks about 1260 days and 1290 days and Jesus talked about how that time will be cut short for the sake of the elect remember that the time of God's wrath being poured out there will be great tribulation for Christians in the last days and for people all over the earth Uh, the fifth seal talks about Uh, martyrdom that many Christians will be killed for their faith Uh, this is not something new it's something new in the United States of America but it's not something new around the world there are Christians who are suffering and dying for their faith today but this seems to be something that will be worldwide and so it'll be very new for many people and we have to be ready for these things Um, uh, but the bowls of God's wrath, these last seven bowls, they are not meant for us. The Bible says that you are not destined for God's wrath. And we will not be under the wrath of God, but we will be with Jesus and we will be protected from these things, but they will be poured out upon the earth. Remember that they are poured out upon the earth for the purpose of preparing the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the purpose of cleansing the earth. Peter talks about how judgment will begin. But it won't begin in the earth, it will begin in the house of God. And we've been seeing that. We've been seeing that for many years. But it will pass from the church into the earth. And judgment is another way of saying house cleaning, of God cleaning up house and preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. So let's pick up in chapter 19, and we've gone over verse 11, but I'll just start reading from there. We'll read verses 11 through 19. It says, And I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, excuse me, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Talked about that. They're not crowns in the sense of, uh, there's a difference difference between crowns and diadems, the difference being that crowns go to victors. Uh, The way they're translated in English, diadems belong by right of birth to the king. There are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in white linen, so we're included in that, white and clean. We talked about that last week. We're following with him on white horses. If you don't know how to ride a horse, you'll know in that day. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At the end of the last lesson, we talked about the oath of the thigh, the oath of the seed, that he is the seed of Abraham. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So this is a great battle at the coming of the Lord. But it's a great battle that is decided in one fell swoop. As the word of God comes forth, riding upon a white horse with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Just as all that exists was created by the word of God when he spoke those first words, let there be light, so the word of God will bring an end to all the nations of this earth and cause them to bow their knees so that every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow. It's not a battle that we'll have to fight. It's a battle that he fights. Really, all of our battles are like that. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, and the Lord fights on our side. And he comes as the Lord of hosts. And we talked about that quite a lot last week. He comes with wrath. He doesn't come on a donkey. He comes on a white horse. He doesn't come as a baby. He comes as a king with many diadems upon his head. It's not because he does not have patience. If this were to happen tomorrow, I would say he's already had enough patience with our earth because it's been 2,000 years since he came the first time. I don't know when this will happen, but we know that he has great patience, but there comes an end to the patience of God. We're actually going to be talking about that some on Sunday in our last lesson in the book of Acts. There comes an end to his patience when things have to be summed up, they have to be completed. So he strikes down the nations. The word strike down in the Greek, it's one word in the Greek, patasso, and it means to strike a fatal blow to the nations. A fatal blow with the word that comes out of his mouth. And he rules over them with a rod of iron. And the Bible says that we will rule and reign together with him. And the word rule, we've already talked about this in another lesson, has to do with he shepherds them with a rod of iron. And the first thing that he will do, and we'll get to this later, um, but we've already looked at it, is he will sit upon his throne, and as a great king and a great shepherd and a great judge, he will divide the nations between the sheep and the goats. And those who are the goat nations will be dispensed with. But those who are the sheep nations will continue on in his kingdom and what's often called the millennial kingdom and the thousand-year reign of Christ. So let me read some other scriptures. All this is just review. We've looked at all these in more detail. But 2 Thessalonians, it's just one of those things you have to bring these and tie them back into these places. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in verse 3, it says, Let no one in any way deceive you. So you have to understand that people and demonic forces are working to deceive us today. Otherwise, it wouldn't be written like that. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. What will not come? The day of the Lord, what we just read about. It will not come unless the apostasy or a great falling away comes first. So there's judgment in the house of God. 
And the man of lawlessness, this is this antichrist or this beast as he's called in the book of Revelation, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Judas was also called the son of perdition, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, whether that means the temple will be rebuilt on the temple mount or it means that he takes his seat as a ruler within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, or some other version of that, I don't know, but we have to be ready and understand that he will put himself in a seat that does not belong to him, displaying himself as being God. Wow. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed, and we talked about that already many lessons ago, that this is the archangel Michael. And it's revealed in Daniel chapter 12 that he will release that restraint. And then he will be revealed because he is the prince over the people of Israel. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, Michael the archangel, will do so. He'll restrain the Antichrist until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawlessness, that lawless one, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay. This is what we're reading about right now. The Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. That's the false prophet working with him, the second beast. And with all the deception of wickedness, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So I have this to tell you tonight. If you don't want to be deceived, then love the truth. If you love the truth, you will never be deceived. For this reason, it says in verse 11, because they don't love the truth, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. That's the world we live in today in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So go back up with me over to Revelation. It talks about him treading out the wine press here. Well, back in Revelation chapter 14, in fact, let me just take a minute to read that. I just want to tie these little loose ends together. Back in Revelation chapter 14, we read in verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle to the earth, and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, the metaphor there isn't something we're really that familiar with, except if we see it in books, because nobody, you know, for the most part, presses wine out in a wine press. But it's something that people that lived in the time this was written, of course, they saw it all around them, and they knew exactly what, they meant, what it meant, and that symbolized this blood that he threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. It was familiar enough that it's still in uh, our old battle hymn of the Republic. You know, glory, glory, hallelujah. I saw him treading out the winepress, you know, that stuff. But it's not so familiar to us today, but it still has the same meaning, the same power. He threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles, for a distance of 200 miles, and we talked about that already and the meaning of those numbers and things in that. But so I want you to understand that what we read in verse 14 and what we read in verse 19 are both just, you know, pictures of the same thing, of the second coming 
of Jesus. And so we have these various pictures that travel throughout 14 and 19, but they culminate here with the revelation of the coming of Jesus. So this is what we commonly call Armageddon, okay? And uh, so it's the gathering of the nations under the leadership, which is revealed to us now, the kings of the earth are under the leadership of the beast. They're under the leadership of the Antichrist. They've been deceived by the false prophet. They've been deceived by Satan, who's called the dragon. We read that he sends out these evil spirits from out of their mouth. It's words. Remember that. It's words. And the deception of words. And they go out like evil spirits, like frogs, it says. And they attach themselves to the ears and the hearts of the kings of the earth. And so they do something that's utterly foolish. They decide that they will gather together against the Lord Jesus Christ to stop him. And of course, they're all destroyed. We notice here that an angel uh, standing in the sun, so at the height of noonday, he's standing in the sun, and it says that he calls to the carrion birds, to all the birds who fly in mid-heaven. Mid-heaven is the atmosphere around our earth. Remember, there are three heavens in the scripture. We've already talked about this, how Satan has been cast down in the book of Revelation to this atmosphere that we live in, and he operates in this atmosphere that we live in. So these birds, they may symbol angels, and I think they do, but I also think they speak literally of birds because there's literally going to be people dying and that many, many people dying. And this angel calls for the carrion birds uh, of the whole earth uh, to come and to eat the dead. Just as the demonic frog-like spirits went out to call the nations to Armageddon, now the Holy Spirit speaks through this angel to call the birds to come and eat the dead. So that's kind of gruesome sounding, I know. <laughs> but it's actually very significant because I want you to go with me back over to Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39. All these things tie in together here. So if you remember Ezekiel 38 and 39, we spent some time in that, are dealing with what we commonly call Gog and Magog. And Ezekiel chapter 39, it says in verse 17, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of burden to every beast of the field. Assemble and come, Gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you, as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are glutted, and drink blood until you are drunk, from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. Well, that's enough reading of that. So you can see very readily that what's written in the book of Revelation is repeating the words of Ezekiel chapter 39. So it's making reference to the same events and to the same things. And this is quite interesting. I want to talk about it uh, just, just for uh, a few minutes. But the first thing I want to point out is that in Ezekiel chapter 39, God speaks this word to the prophet, Ezekiel. And he says, you call for the birds. You call for the beasts of the field. And then in uh, Revelation chapter 19, it's an angel standing in the sun that speaks these words. 
But I want to point out how heaven and earth work together. And this is true in every realm of intercession. We don't understand why, perhaps. I can explain to you reasons why. I could do whole hours of teaching on it. But it's not really necessary to understand why. It's helpful sometimes, but what's necessary is to understand this, that when God works a work on, in, the, in this earth, he works it through a man. Even the work of our salvation is worked through the man, Christ Jesus. God could not come, I don't like saying could not in the, in the case of God, because I don't want to limit God in any way, but God would not come. So in the sense of his will, he could not come just as the Holy Spirit, and just snap a magic wand, boom, your sin is done with, and, and that's it. A sacrifice had to, be, had to be made. A man had to die for our sin. A man, the Lamb of God, without sin. So everything that God does, he does through his church. He does through his people. That's why it's so important for us to know what God wants, to agree with what God, God wants, to confess what God wants, and to pray according to what God wants. And when we don't know how to pray, to pray in the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will give us revelation and lead us and guide us. It's not a lazy work. It's not something we can just pretend to do and just get by. God needs us to actively participate with him. So the word is actually spoken originally by the prophet, and then is repeated, well, originally by God. God's the one that calls him to do it. But the prophet first echoes the word of God, and then the angel echoes the words of the prophet. It's really a cool picture if you think about it, because it's how prayer works, and we just don't always see it or realize it. Daniel didn't know what was going on in the heavenlies also. He was just fasting and praying for two weeks, but suddenly it was revealed to him that there is a spiritual battle going on in the heavens, and your prayers on this earth are participating in uh, that battle. So the other thing I want to say about this, go with me over to chapter 20 and verse 7. We'll come back to it later when we get to it. Chapter 20 of Revelation and verse 7. It says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. But this is not Armageddon, because a chronology is revealed to us and given to us. This is a thousand years after Armageddon. Okay? And yet, the description of it is just the same. Because Satan never has any new tricks, and people never have any new kind of rebellion. It's the same old rebellion that was committed by Adam and Eve in the garden. That they will raise themselves up above God, and be a God to themselves. So it happens at the end of the thousand years, and it's also called Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog. So when we go back to Ezekiel, and I'm not going to do that now because we've looked at it extensively, or enough, extensively enough, we see one of the principles of Bible prophecy that I've talked a lot to you, uh, to you about, that with Bible prophecy, there's always at least, well, I don't know about always, I've checked all the stats on this. But there's always at least a, a double fulfillment of that prophecy. And I described it to you, uh, if you remember, like a person, like if I were to go out and I were to stand on uh, one of the highest mountains here on the western side of Mason Valley, 
and I were to look out and I could see the Sierra Nevadas, but it was the first time I had ever seen that, okay? And I didn't have a map, and nobody had ever explored that territory, and I just wrote down that there are snow-covered mountains just right before me. I can almost reach out and touch them. But in fact, that's not really true. It's true from my perspective that God has given to me at this point, that God's revelation is progressive in our lives, right? And then time goes on, and another person comes to prophecy, prophesy, and he prophesies about those snow-covered mountains, but he's actually been there. He's actually measured the distance, and he can tell you a whole lot more about it than I could tell you standing far away. So Old Testament prophecy is correct, but it's not as accurate. I don't know if accurate is the right word. It's not as detailed. It's accurate, but not as detailed as New Testament prophecy. So the further we go on in the scripture, the more detail it is. So when we go back to Ezekiel, we see that there are at least three fulfillments of what Ezekiel was talking about in chapter 38 and 39. The first of them, according to Ezekiel 39.9, and we talked about this already, 39.9, it mentions that there will be seven years that people will be gathering up and burying the bodies that die from this battle that's coming. The seven years is not insignificant because Daniel and Ezekiel are contemporaries and the things they're prophesying about are the same things. And the seven years has a great significance in Daniel's prophecies. It's referring to the last seven years. And so the first fulfillment happens as best as we can understand of the Gog and Magog war against Israel and against the Lord happens somewhere before the final seven years. Whether that's going to happen and it has not happened yet, or perhaps that means what's been happening for the last 2,500 years. Because all the nations mentioned in Ezekiel have been warring against Israel at one time or another for, for over a thousand years. And in this latter half of the 20th century, all of these nations, including uh, nations like the Soviet Union, uh, you know, were, were either at war actively or passively against Israel. We, we don't really know exactly when this first fulfillment is going to happen, okay? Or if it's already happening right now. But that's the thing about Bible prophecy. That's why even Jesus said, I don't know the day or the hour. My father kept that to himself. So you just better be ready. We just know that it is happening, okay? Then there's a second fulfillment of the Gog and Magog battle, and that is Armageddon. We just looked at it, where verse 19 quotes from Ezekiel 39 and speaks the same thing. And yet there is an ultimate fulfillment, and that comes after the thousand years. It's a great deception and a revolt that happens against God. Now, you might be thinking, we'll get more to this later, it won't be in this lesson, but when we talk about the thousand-year reign of Christ, hopefully it'll be the next lesson. Uh, how could it be that these people go into the millennium and they're the sheep nations and they bear children and they, you know, the earth is populated with these people and these nations and Jesus is actually physically on the earth ruling and reigning and they would be deceived and revolt against Jesus again. Well, then you'd have to ask the question, how could Adam and Eve do that? You'd have to ask the question, how could any of us, knowing Christ so well in our lives, sin? You know, that's how deception works. 
and, and it will come. And there will be another revolt against Jesus in the end before Satan is utterly cast into the lake of fire. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, John the Baptist said, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming, Jesus Christ, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So oftentimes when we hear this verse, baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, we think, oh, I'm baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, hallelujah. <laughs> but that's not really what John the Baptist is talking about. He's contrasting the Holy Spirit, the wind of God, and the fire of God. And he says he's going to come with his winnowing fork, another metaphor that we don't really get because we don't do that anymore, but from storybooks and going to, I don't know, old-fashioned uh, little uh, places where they reconstruct these things. Maybe we understand this, that they used to gather all of the grain, right, from the harvest onto a threshing floor. And that threshing floor would be located on a higher hill so that the wind could blow through that place. And they take the winnowing fork and they would throw that grain up into the air and the wind would blow through and it would blow the chaff off of the grain, but the grain being heavier would fall back down to the threshing floor. And so they continued to do that until more or less nothing was left there except grain and all of the chaff was gathered to the side. And they would take the chaff and burn it up with fire. I will baptize the chaff with fire. I will separate them from mine. I will separate the goats from the sheep. I will separate the uh, weeds or the tares from the wheat. We have many of these parables in the scripture. But you will be separate to, to me. And the Holy Spirit will blow through. And if you have the weight of God's glory in you, if you are born again, if you are a child of God, you'll, it, it'll be troubling, you know. <laughs> you're going to go through many difficult times, but you're going you're gonna to land on your feet. You're going to fall back to the threshing floor and you'll be gathered into the barn of God, gathered into the kingdom of God. So that's a process of time. And we see that with all of these prophecies. But we definitely see it here with the Gog and Magog prophecy, that it's a threefold winnowing fork process of cleansing the threshing floor of God. So here's another aspect of that, the threshing floor. What is the threshing floor? Well, there's one threshing floor in Scripture that has more significance than any other threshing floor, and it's called the threshing floor of Ornan. And we referred to it last Sunday in the, in the uh, message, I believe it was last Sunday, when David uh, was told that he could choose between three different punishments. And after that story, when God has mercy on him and staves the hand of the angel that's come to destroy Jerusalem, that's when... Uh, David goes up to the threshing floor of Ornan and because that's where the angel was standing. The angel was standing on the threshing floor of Ornan. And he goes up to Ornan and says, give me this threshing floor. And Ornan, who was a Jebusite, not an Israelite, said, I'll give it to you freely because you're the king. And David said, I will not take it freely. I, I can only purchase this from you. It must be my complete property. 
so that nobody ever argued about it. And here we are 3,000 years later, and they're still arguing about it because that threshing floor is the Temple Mount. It's where he commanded and prepared everything for Solomon to build the temple. It's, it's supposed to be, and from Scripture we can uh, um, uh, uh, understand by putting these things together that it's also Mount Moriah where Abraham offered up Isaac to God. And this mountain, this threshing floor, was purchased by David and belongs to the seed of David, belongs to Jesus Christ. So he says, I will cleanse my threshing floor. I will cleanse my temple. But then we can take that over to the church too. Because we may be located in Yerington, Nevada, but we are the Israel of Christ. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will not allow his threshing floor to remain cluttered with chaff. He will cleanse that threshing floor. He will not allow us to suffocate in the chaff. He will not allow us to mold, to mildew, and for the wheat to be lost. And that's why he's doing what he's doing in his coming. Amen. So let's look at verses 20 and 21. It says, and the beast, that's the first beast, was seized. So that's the Antichrist. He's seized by the nape of the neck. And with him, the false prophet, the second beast, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These, listen to this. This is so cool. I don't know. I just love this. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Remember these two guys, they're not demons. They're human beings that are demon-possessed. And human beings die physically before they exit this earth. And there are very few exceptions that we know of from Scripture. Elijah went up in a chariot of fire. Enoch was translated uh, up into heaven uh, without, without death. Well, you may say Jesus, but he did actually die and was raised from the dead. So, I mean, this is a... Very few exceptions made to this rule. Nobody leaves this earth without dying first, okay? And yet these two are the opposite of Enoch and Elijah. They're sent to hell without dying first. Only it's not, as we've already talked about hell, it's not really hell, it's the lake of fire. So the very first inhabitants or prisoners in the lake of fire are, is not even Satan and it's not his demons. Even though Jesus said, that that lake of fire, Gienna, was created by God for the devil and his demons. It was not created for people. People don't have to go there. They can repent. They can turn to the Lord. And they can be saved from that lake of fire. But all the demons and Satan, for them there is no repentance. And they will go to the lake of fire. But before Satan has ever even thrown into the lake of fire, a thousand years before Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, God just gets rid of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And I personally, we already talked about this, but I personally on that day am going to be shouting for joy because I'm sick of this Babylon. I'm sick of this Antichrist. I'm sick of all this stuff. And I just would like to see it all burn in the lake of fire. And God knows in his time and he's going to take care of that. So it says these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone or with sulfur. And uh, maybe we'll have some time to talk about that in more detail. There's some interesting stuff about that, but it takes a long time. And the rest were killed. The rest. Who are the rest? Not everybody on the earth, mind you, but the rest of the armies that came there. You know, when an army fights, it's not every person, right? 
And we know because God will, Jesus will call the nations to himself and divide them as a sheep from the goats. But the rest of these armies, these princes, these kings that came out with them, were, the, were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him. So they're not killed with what we would understand as physical swords. They're killed by the word of God. It goes forth and destroys them, the light and the glory. They were killed by the sword which came forth, came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So, two down, one to go. If you remember, we had uh, the main characters, the main protagonist and antagonist in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. And we've got two of these beasts in chapter 13. We've got a dragon in chapter 12. And both beasts are in the, already in the lake of fire. Chapter 20 is going to dispense with the dragon. Get rid of the devil. And that's really good to, to, to do. But I do want to point something out to you just in our regular Christian life. Oftentimes we would love to just be rid of the devil. For him not to be anywhere around us anymore. And we don't understand why we keep going through temptations. Why we keep going through trials and tribulations. And the, 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 why we have to keep fighting these spiritual battles. Well, I honestly um, don't know that I can explain this to you in five minutes. Because it might sound a little bit confusing or even in one minute. Because it might sound a little confusing. But I'll try as short as I can and just take it as it is. God always has the last word, okay? He always has the last word. And Satan is used by God, but not in the way that you would think. Like God's this evil puppet master. I'm going to sick Satan on them right now. No, Satan is doing the things he does by his own will and his own purposes to destroy the kingdom of God and to destroy the people of God. We already read about that in chapter 12. He's going about like a roaring lion. Uh, there is a conspiracy against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is a satanic conspiracy. It says very clearly in chapter 12, he's doing everything possible to destroy the children of God. Okay? But, this is what you have to understand. Like a great chess master, <laughs> or a great general, a great strategist, everything Satan does, God already knows what he's going to do ahead of time, and knows exactly how he's going to turn that to Satan's defeat. Do you understand? And so Satan is not dispensed of. He's not removed. He's allowed to continue to do what he does as a part of the winnowing process, as a part of the cleansing and the judging process. And it can be hard to understand sometimes in Scripture. It's hard to understand the book of Job. You know, why is God listening to the devil when he's saying this stuff about Job? But our difficulty in understanding that mainly comes from false teaching and false ideas about God and not trusting in the sovereignty of God. So there are things that we see in Scripture that we don't understand, and until we do understand, we just have to accept them and take them the way they are. That there is an enemy, and even before that enemy will be disposed of, God's going to deal with the Antichrist and the false prophet first. And then he's going to actually release that enemy upon the earth again. Whether you like it or not. To see who's really on his side. Because you know, you don't always know who's really on your side just because they say you're on, their, on your side. And he will allow that deception to come upon the earth again. 
But there's another way to look at it. The other way to look at it is uh, the, the, the metaphor and the example of gold in the scripture. You know, if you didn't put the, and I've never smelted gold either, so it's not something I'm familiar with, but from reading books and reading the scripture, you know, if they never put that gold into the crucible and never put it through that, that extremely hot satanic fire, the gold would never come out, would it? It would just be stuck in that rock. And things are purified by fire. So whether we like it or not, God's going to allow Satan to work until the very end. And it will bring, uh, uh, and it's all for his good. He causes all things to work together for the good. So I'm going to do some, I'm going to take a little break here and do something else for the last few minutes that we have. But it's tied into this kind of current event thing. Um, uh, but before I do, to, in order to tie this in, uh, I, I want you to understand that this is a war of words. It's something I really want you to pay attention to. Because battles are fought and people are killed, um, and all battles begin with rhetoric. They all begin with words, always. And we see that there are frogs going out from the mouth of Satan words that go out from his mouth to deceive the nations to bring them down and when jesus defeats them he defeats them with his word there is no weapon that we have that is any more powerful than the word of god than the love of the truth and speaking god's word and being those who speak the truth so there are things that you know as we as we go through this i know that sometimes the feeling is that this is really interesting but I don't know that this is ever going to actually happen in my lifetime or that we're even anywhere near this. And I know that because sometimes I have that feeling. You know, you go through life and you're like, you've been reading this or studying it, teaching on it for 58 years now. Well, not when I was a baby, but you know, for 50 years I've been hearing about this. And, and you know, it doesn't seem that uh, we're any closer on the one hand. And then on the other hand, it seems like we're really, really close but the reality of it, and I'm not a woman, so I've never carried a baby in my womb, and I don't have a womb, okay? But I've watched it. And I know that the reality, especially with the first birth, of that moment of a baby actually being born, I mean, all along, mama knows that baby's in it. And I'm telling you, from the dad side, it's, it's 100 times more. You're like, yeah, I know there's a baby in there because my wife's all fat or something. But, you know, there's a big, big baby in there. But you don't really get that reality, you know. You're, I mean, going up to the very moment of, I remember you know, when Sasha was born, up to the very moment of her birth, I'm just kind of joking around, having fun. There was one of those birthing balls I was playing basketball with and everything. And then here comes that head, you know. Here comes that baby. And you're just in, for a dad, you're in tears. You're just shocked. You know, it's just like, wow. And you know that that baby's coming, but you, it's, it's hard to imagine until that actually happens. And so I, I really want you to understand that, that um, we don't know the day or the hour, but the times that we live in today are very, very serious. And we are very close to the coming of the Lord. And these are times when we need to be sober. These are times when we need to be vigilant. These are times when we need to be ready. We need to get our houses in order. We need to be 
prepared. And I'm not talking about storing up tons of food in your basement, although that may be part of it if you can afford to do that and have a basement. You know, but that we are prepared by faith, that we are prepared to do what God is calling us to do. And we are prepared to lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel. Because most Christians today in America are not prepared for that. They would say that they are, but we're still, we're, we're too much into compromising. We just compromise on things. And I'm not talking about all the little stuff in our life, like I was on a diet and then I ate the chocolate bar instead. You know, not that kind of stuff. Uh, the fleshly things that probably we struggle with all of our lives because we're in this body and we do need to uh, overcome our flesh and walk by the Spirit, you know. Um, but I'm talking about those things where we're faced with decisions in life and we know that if I make this right decision or speak this right word, I might lose my job for that. You know, and then we're like, well, it's not worth losing my job over Jesus. So, no. You know, we never would say it like that. But you know what I'm saying? We're very into compromising. I could, don't want to give you a bunch of examples because I know that you, you know it's true. And we've got to change. We've got to get really serious. So I wanted to talk just for a few minutes, uh, really, literally a few minutes, to explain some things about what's happening in the Russian-Ukraine uh, 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 conflict right now. And I don't really care which side you're on in that conflict or what, you know, you, I support Ukraine or I support Russia or something like that. Uh, because the really only side we need to be on is on the Jesus side. And, um, and the reason I want to do this is uh, in, in part just to maybe enlighten you because our news media does a really bad job of that. But, but really, so you understand just how close we are to the events of the book of Revelation. Um, so I want to begin by just telling you about, I have it right here, but I'm not going to read it to you because it's long and boring, but telling you about a, a bill that was introduced into the United States Congress on January the 19th, 2022. Now you remember the Russian invasion began on February the 24th. So this is a full month and, and six days five or six days before that. So on January the 19th, 2022, this bill was introduced into Congress. On May the 6th, I think it says there, 2022, it was passed as a law, and it is a law in the United States. It's called the Ukraine Democracy Defense Land Lease Act of 2022. And basically what it means is we send billions and billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine and the price of our gas goes sky high. That's what it means to me, but maybe it means something different to you. But um, that was passed in, into law. But you really understand the original intent of the law and the motive behind the law when you look at its uh, introductory form, how it was introduced. The final law has some of these words gone from it because they didn't apply anymore because the invasion had already happened. So what you see in this law is that there was already in January of 2022 a movement that was uh, a massive movement that united all Republicans and Democrats with just about 10 uh, congressmen that voted against it, which is a rare thing, mind you. In fact, when you see 
that there is complete unity between Republicans and Democrats, you ought to think something's rotten in Denmark. <laughs> something's going on that's wrong. But complete unity around this. And the purpose of the bill, number one, was to support militarily an invasion of Crimea by Ukrainian forces, that the United States would support that invasion. So there was a planned, already, invasion of Crimea to take Crimea back for Ukraine. And again, I don't really care whether you're in support of that or not in support of that. I just want you to understand the facts. That happened a good, that, that was put into a bill a month before uh, the February 24th invasion. The second part of this bill, the, the motive of it or the intent of it is to establish control over the Russian military on Russian soil to control the Russian military on Russian soil, okay? Try to put into these words the United States military on United States soil, okay? Try to put yourself in Russia's shoes because I can tell you as Russians that Russians are just as proud as Americans and there's no, there's no way they would ever agree to this. It automatically meant that there's going to be fighting when the United States already put the, when the congressman put this into a bill. And then the final ultimate goal of the bill is regime change in Russia. And whether, again, whether you like it or not, 80% of Russians support their president. So people may hate Putin, but tough luck, that's what the people vote for there. And that's what they support. So in the bill, it says, I promise you this has to do with Revelation. I'll get to that in a minute. You have to understand this. In, a, in the bill, uh, again, the purpose of the bill is to lend or lease uh, weapons and technology to Ukraine, and Ukraine would pay it back later. And they don't really pay it back. They pay it back the same way that it was paid back after World War II. The United States just gets to take over certain territories and military bases and own things in those countries because they can't pay it back. They don't have enough money to pay that back. And it supports our entire military-industrial complex. Um, so in the bill, it says that this, the, the um, enhanced authority, and by the way, the bill is to give the President of the United States enhanced authority so they can do these things without it being voted on in Congress. Again, how would it happen that all the Republicans would vote to give Biden complete free hand? It doesn't make sense, but that's what the Book of Revelation is talking about. Crazy things happening. So the enhanced authority shall expire on the date in which each of the following conditions is met. So this, these, these things have to be met before this ends. Number one, the conflict described in paragraph uh, 2A has, must cease. The Russian Federation has reduced its military force on the eastern border of Ukraine to levels commensurate with the levels maintained prior to March 1st, 2021. Okay, I'll explain those. Russian Federation has reduced its military force on the eastern border of Ukraine. Do you know who owns the eastern border of Ukraine? It's not Poland, it's Russia. So that's like saying until the United States has reduced its military force on the southern border with Mexico or on the northern border with Canada. There, what, what it's saying is that this bill, this law, will be in force until Russian, the Russian military submits to numbers that we require them to have. Something the United States never submits to. Some nations submit to those things because 
they need money, they need support, they need whatever, or they've been defeated in battle, right? Germany submitted to that after World War I and again after World War II. They submitted to everything we made them do because they didn't have any choice because we defeated them in battle. But nations that are great nations and nations that are superpower nations like Russia do not submit to things like that any more than America would unless they've been defeated in battle. So what it's really saying is that the, talking about the defeat of the Russian military and control over Russian territory. And again, that may be something that you or somebody listening to me is in favor of. I, I don't really care. I just want you to understand that before the invasion ever happened, the gauntlet was thrown down by the United States. You understand? It was put into a bill. This is what our goal is, is to defeat the Russian military and control it and to end the conflict described in paragraph 2A. So what's the conflict described in paragraph 2A? Hold on, this won't take long. The conflict described in this paragraph is the conflict between the Russian Federation and Ukraine that began in February 2014. You see, in the media, they want to make you think that this whole conflict began on February 24th. But people know, people that know things know that's not true. Even in the United States Congress, they know it actually began eight years ago. It began in 2014. And then it says, when the Russian Federation invaded Ukraine and annexed the Crimea region of Ukraine. So I'm not going to go into the details of this, but I just want you to understand this, not to get you to agree with it, because again, I don't, you know, you can have different political points of views or points of views about different things, but when Russia took Crimea, Russia did not then, nor do they now, uh, see that as an invasion. They saw that as liberating the Russians who lived in Crimea, who were being oppressed by the, after the illegal coup d'etat that happened in Kiev, and a new president came to power, and the legally uh, elected president was deposed, okay? Whether you agree with that scenario or not doesn't really matter to what I'm saying, what, what I want to say. What matters is that you understand that's how at least 80% of Russians view it. That's how Russia views it. They do not view Crimea as something they stole. They view Crimea as something that they liberated and something that belongs to them rightfully by law for centuries, okay? And they will not. You have to understand this because the United States government does understand this. They will not just re retreat from Crimea. It would be like, to them, it would be like the United States retreating from Texas. It, it literally would. It's just not going to happen. Abraham Lincoln would not allow the states to be divided. You know the Civil War wasn't really about uh, slavery. Uh, it was spiritually, I think. But that wasn't, you know, the real thing was about secession, that you could not secede from the United States. So that's how Russians view Crimea. But here in this bill that, again, came out in January, a full month before the invasion, the United States put on paper for all the world to see, and I can promise you the Kremlin saw it, that we are going to militarily support Ukraine until Crimea is taken away from Russia and the Russian military is put under our control. Okay, do you understand that? So, I read that. Now let me give you something else. I'm leading up to something. <clears throat> so just this week, a uh, long-term... Uh, uh, military guarantee 
was proposed by President Zelensky in Kyiv and by different NATO members um, uh, for NATO to support um, the support Ukraine in the long term. And if if you watch, if you pay any attention to what's happening there, then probably the only thing that you've seen being in the United States and the media being controlled the way it is is that there's been an offensive from the Ukrainian troops and they've taken back some territory because that's the thing that's being touted right now really big. What you don't understand and don't know, and it would take me hours to show all this to you, but it's confirmed fact that these are, that, that conflict has entered into a completely different stage, a third stage, okay? And the, the, the troops that are taking territories right now, they are not commanded by Ukrainians. They are commanded by Americans. They are commanded by British. They are commanded by Polish officers. The strategy is being controlled by NATO. All of the weapons are NATO weapons. You know that we've sent billions of dollars of HIMARS and all these different weapons over there because in the first stage of the conflict, Russia, Russia basically wiped out the entire air force of, of Ukraine, wiped everything out there in just a few days. So we've sent these weapons in there. And again, whether you support that or not, I just want you to understand where we are in the world today, okay? And so this third stage is actually very much so, not just, and it just is, it's just a fact. It's a proxy war between NATO and Russia. And they're using Ukraine to accomplish their will with Russia. So don't think about World War III coming. It's actually here. And it's so crucial that we stand in prayer because the results of that are catastrophic to everyone on this planet. And it's actually already here, and it's here for no reason at all. <laughs> That's like almost every war. Every single thing in Ukraine could have been settled diplomatically. They actually went and signed Minsk agreements, is what they are called. And in those agreements, Everything would have been settled, and when President Zelensky was elected, he promised to fulfill them, and then he broke his promise and uh, did not fulfill them, and so now they have war. But the bottom line is the people in those territories that this whole war is about, they're Russians, and they don't want to live in Ukraine. They want to live in Russia, and that's just the whole thing is about. But such a little, tiny, local conflict that should not have anything to do with my life in Nevada has everything to do with my life because it's exploded into the beginnings of a world war. And we cannot diminish the place that we are at right now and how we should be standing in prayer and how we should uh, be praying. So this is an article from The Guardian, which I don't like The Guardian, but if you want the liberal side of things, you'll find it there. And um, it tells about, about this um, uh, security uh, guarantee that they're proposing. So it says, um, I'll just read the sections of it. It says, Ukraine's allies should commit to uh, legally binding large-scale weapons transfers and multi-decade multi investment in the country's defenses, according to a report that looked at alternatives to Kyiv's long-term aspirations to join the NATO alliance. The report was commissioned by the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and co-authored Listen, it's co-authored by the former NATO Secretary General uh, Anders Fogh Rasmussen and Zelensky's Chief of Staff Andrei Yermak. So it's being promoted by NATO. 
The purpose of the report, uh, I'll skip over that and go down. And these are the purposes of the report. It says, no restriction on the military, diplomatic, and economic help provided by NATO members' countries through bilateral agreements. So there will be no restrictions on how much military support can be sent to Ukraine. Ukraine needs the resources to maintain a significant defensive force capable of withstanding the Russian Federation's armed forces and paramilitaries. That sounds nice, but you need to read it like this. Ukraine, Ukraine needs an arsenal of nuclear weapons because there's no way that any country can withstand the Russian Federation's armed forces and paramilitaries without nuclear weapons. There's no way that any nation can withstand the United States without nuclear weapons because we always have that last ace in the hole, the nuclear weapon. So what they're saying is that they will provide, and this is how Russia is seeing this, they will provide Ukraine with an arsenal of nuclear weapons and all the weapons they need to uh, withstand uh, the Russian Federation. Okay, so then it goes on. It says, this requires a multi-decade effort, that sounds like prices of gas are going up, of sustained investment in Ukraine's def defense industrial base, scalable weapons transfers and intelligence support from allies, intensive training missions, and joint exercises. That's happening right now. NATO forces are on the ground, not officially, but they are on the ground. I mean, you can see videos of this on the internet. They've got American flags, they've got British flags. They're on the ground fighting right now in Ukraine against Russian forces. Um, joint exercises under the European Union and NATO flags. Uh, and these are the nations they call to sign this agreement. The United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Poland, Italy, Germany, on and on, all these nations. But you note the United States. Whether Biden will or not, I'm praying he won't. Because this is foolishness. And I'll explain to you why in a minute, if you don't already understand. The military guarantees might provide commitments to Ukraine that amount to a closed sky through the provision of anti-aircraft and anti-missile defense equipment. Then it says the guarantees the report suggests should not require Ukraine to limit the size or strength of its armed forces. So the United States is saying officially we will limit the size and strength of Russian forces but not Ukrainian forces. In other words, NATO will control what Russia does. Okay? Again, maybe you think that's a good idea. But you have to understand that that puts Russia, and Russia has been put, and be been put for over eight years, into, trust me, I understand this really well. I'm not explaining this to you just from a standpoint of, oh, support Russia or something like that. So you understand what's happening in the world. Russia has been put into a corner, driven into a corner, and this has been going on for eight years. Okay? Russia has no place to re retreat. And when a bear has no place to retreat, watch out. You're going to have to kill that bear or he's going to kill you. Russia has no place to retreat to. Russia will not give up the Crimea. Russia will not go down in defeat. It'll either go down in utter defeat or it won't go down in defeat at all. And historically, nobody has ever defeated Russia, ever. Not Napoleon, not Hitler, not anybody, for various reasons, like it's too big and many other things, and they do have nuclear weapons and stuff. But either way, it's like just this foolish game that's being played, and our lives are on the line. Our very lives are on the line, the lives of the people in the world. Things that we read about in the book of Revelation are about to happen, and it's important for us to stay in prayer. 
So Ukraine's forces would not be uh, limited. Uh, Ukraine would not be forced to adopt a position of neutrality as long as Ukraine continued on a democratic path. And you don't understand what democratic path means. You have to know that when the world speaks today, they speak with their own special language. A democratic path means that you embrace all the LGBT, whatever, uh, and all the liberal morals of the West. The things that Russia rejects, Ukraine will stay on this democratic path. And if they do, then they'll get all this support. Then it says a legal framework should be developed that will allow authorities to seize the property of the aggressor, its foreign fund, sovereign funds and reserves, and the assets of its citizens and entities on the sanctions list. Doesn't that sound like a declaration of war? They're going to, so, I mean, it's basically, if the U.S. signs on to this, it's like we're declaring war on Russia. We're going to seize all your assets. Uh, what's happening in Syria today? Whatever side of that thing you come down on in, in Syria, the fact is the United States has fought for and taken the oil fields. <laughs> we control the oil of Syria. But the Syrian oil doesn't really belong to the United States. It belongs to the Syrian people. And Russia is vastly wealthy. So don't make any mistake about this, that the United States has plans. I could give you quotes from Blinken to Biden to many different people. They have plans for regime change in Russia. They have plans for the division of territories in Russia. They have plans for the demilitarization of Russia and to control the resources uh, of Russia. That's really what it's all about. And they don't care how many people die. And you should never think that they care how many people die. They haven't cared how many of us die for decades. When I was a little kid going to school, they taught us, when you get married, you have only two kids. If you have more than two kids, you're destroying the planet because we're overpopulated. We're going to destroy ourselves. This has been going, you know this has been going on for decades. And they don't care how many people get wiped out because it's a lot better for the elite if we all get wiped out and they'll save the planet from all these things. So there's a lot of stuff happening. And it says sanctions will not be lifted off of Russia until Russia stops its aggression against Ukraine, guarantees it will not attack Ukraine in the future, and compensates Ukraine, pays Ukraine back for all the damages caused during the invasion. In other words, sanctions will never quit because Russia will never do any of that stuff. Never. They're never going to do that stuff. So the reason I read all that to you, <laughs> talked about that even, is to get, actually to get to this. And I'm going to end with this. It'll take two minutes. Today, in Telegram, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a social media thing, on Dmitry Medvedev's Telegram channel, so Dmitry Medvedev, he's the deputy chairman of the Security Council of Russia. The chairman is Vladimir Putin. So in other words, Dmitry Medvedev runs the Security Council of, of Russia. He's the active head of that. He was the president of Russia for four years, and he was the prime minister of Russia. He's more than likely, it's hard to tell with these things, but the second most influential and powerful politician in Russia after Vladimir Putin. He's young, he's a year younger than I am, and I'm really young. And uh, today in his Telegram channel, this is what he wrote, and I translated it to English, talking about what I just read to you, okay? The Kiev cartel, as he calls it, has given birth, because they don't recognize the authority of the, because the, they, they see that as being, the president as being the result of a coup. 
Again, doesn't matter if you agree with that, it's just how Russia sees it. The Kiev cartel has given birth to a project called Security Guarantees, what I was just talking to you about, which is nothing more than a prologue to World War III. Of course, no one is going to offer any guarantees to Ukrainian Nazis. What he means by that is this has nothing to do with Ukraine. It has to do with making war with Russia. Basically, it's the same as applying Article 5 of the NATO Treaty or the Washington Treaty to Ukraine. If you don't know what Article 5 is, it means if any member of NATO is attacked, that all members of NATO will defend it. And he says that, which it is. Basically, it's the same as applying Article 5 to Ukraine. This is the same NATO... And then he made that little emoji of a poop. So I guess that's the word he meant there. The same NATO poop symbol, only from a different angle. And that is what makes it so scary. Our Western friends with whom we have a love-hate relationship, political heads of various calibers, don't get your feelings hard, I'm just reading what he wrote, political heads of various calibers to whom this hysterical appeal has been made must at last understand one simple thing that has a direct relationship to the hybrid war NATO is currently fighting with Russia. If these halfwits continue the unrestrained propping up of the Kyiv regime with the most dangerous kinds of weapons, then sooner or later this military operation will move to a different level. The limited borders and predictable actions of both sides of the conflict will disappear. It will become a conflict that takes on its own trajectory, one that follows a scenario of all-out war involving new combat combatants. Thus, it has always been. And then Western nations will in no wise be able to continue to sit out the conflict in their clean and comfortable homes, mocking us and laughing at how they are weakening Russia by the hand of a foreign country. Everything will flare up around them, and their people will be utterly seized with woe. Their land will literally burn, and their cement walls melt. We also will be hit hard. It will be very, very bad for everyone on the earth. And then he says, as it is written, in quotes from Revelation 9.18, a third of mankind was killed by three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. And he puts the accent in the writing on which proceeded out of their mouths. That we're leading ourselves to utter nuclear destruction where a third of the earth is destroyed just because we can't keep our mouths shut, just because we can't just sit down at a table and make agreements. He says, but for now, the narrow-minded little politicians and their stupid think tanks, <laughs> they are stupid think tanks, sorry, <laughs> sit wistfully swirling their glasses of wine in their hands, debating about how they can dispose of us without actually engaging in a direct war with us, these boring idiots with elementary educations, the end. So that was his little rant on Telegram today. But you have to understand, this guy is not some peon ranting. This is the second most powerful, if he's writing this, this is what Putin thinks. This is what the whole Kremlin thinks. This is what the generals think. That you people in the West, by constantly supplying all these weapons, by sending your own officers over to fight against us, what do you think is gonna come of this? Because so far, Russia has committed a very small portion of their force to this and called it a military operation. But if it turns into a war, that's a completely different thing. And if the United States and Russia go to war, what happened to us that we're so stupid now? Because all of us, because when I was growing up, everybody knew that there can never be a war with the Soviet Union. Do you remember that? 
It's mutual destruction. That was, and the, the beauty of the mutual destruction was that it's never going to happen. And I lived my entire life during the Cold War, even with all those drills we did, thinking that this could never really happen. I was never afraid of a nuclear war. I don't know if you were, but maybe you're older than me and you were, but I was born in 64, and I was never afraid that a nuclear bomb was going to be dropped in the United States. Because, and you know, when you're a kid, you're not afraid of anything. But I'm talking about when I understood it, because it's not going to happen because it means that we're all going to be destroyed, and so that means it will never happen. And somehow, we've come to the point, mark my words, that in 2022, for the first time in human history, we stand on the verge of the sixth trumpet, of this actually being able to happen, the things in the book of Revelation. That it actually could happen that a third of mankind would be destroyed. And this has never been like this in history before. Why? Because we never had these kind of weapons before. And so I believe that it's very important for us to be vigilant and stand strong in prayer and pray. These things will happen eventually. They're there in the book of Revelation. But I don't want them to happen yet. I don't believe enough people are saved yet. You know, I just don't want to face them. I'm ready to face them if that's the will of God and if it's really the time for that. But why should we be pushing for uh, all-out destruction when we could be pushing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? So we really, as Christians, need to stop the political games and be on Jesus' side in, in the things that are happening in the world today. Because we, I, you know, I just hope in this little sharing that I've done that you can see that we stand on the brink of the things that are in the book of Revelation happening. And we need to pull our heads out of the sand and realize that. And we need to get to really pray. You know, really pray. Because most of you in here know that wise decisions are not being made in Washington right now. And we don't have any power to change that. And we won't change it just by voting. Go and vote, because that's important too. But we'll change those things by prayer. You know, Daniel, when they told him he couldn't pray, he didn't listen. He just went on praying. That's when they threw him in the lion's den. But it didn't matter. Why? Because that prayer was the most important thing in his life. He knew that that prayer really does, like the signs around town say, change things. Amen? Yeah, let's stand together. Father, I just thank you for this evening, and I pray your blessings on, on your word, Lord, that there would be no fear in us except for a fear of God. But I pray that you would awaken a fear of God in our hearts, Lord, that we would stand before you and that we would realize you know, just like in the first century, you warned them. You told them that a day is coming very soon when not one stone will be left upon another. And none of them could believe that or see that. It was something unimaginable to them. But you did warn them. And you've warned us so fairly. You've told us so clearly, Lord. And this is a time for us to put our houses in order, for us to pray. And not just to pray about things we hear in the media but really focus, God. Maybe we need to turn the media off completely and really listen to you, Holy Spirit. What is your will? What is your desire, Lord? It is not your will that people should perish. And people are perishing today. People are being destroyed today. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give some more time for the gospel to be preached freely in Ukraine and in Russia and in Eastern Europe and in the United States, Lord that you would just bring people into your 
onto that threshing floor and burn up that chaff, but save the wheat, Lord. Don't let the wheat be destroyed in the fire. I thank you for the baptism of your Holy Spirit in our lives and on this church. In Jesus' name, I just pray. Teach us to pray, Lord. That's what your disciples said. Teach us to pray. And if we don't know how to pray and don't know what to pray, then let us just pray in the Holy Spirit with groanings that are too deep for words and let your will be accomplished by a praying church. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.